0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: No longer a victim. Uh, The subtitle to this one is Thinking and Reasoning as a Victor Instead of as a Victim. There is a disease that is sweeping through our nation. It's not just our nation. It's like any nation. Self-pity has been on the rise. Uh, I mean, it's always laboring to gain a, a stronghold in any one of our lives. And it's one of those, what we could call a cuddly, stuffed animal sort of sin. Sort of like impatience. It's like impatience is something little kids deal with. Self-pity is the type of thing that little kids deal with. And, I mean, we can treat it that way, and it will kill us. In other words, if you do not recognize the dangers of self-pity, it will eat you for lunch. It is a deadly disease, and though it looks cozy, soft, and cushy from the outside, and it even seems warranted. I mean, you've gone through difficulties. You've been hurt. You've been harmed. And, yes, it was unjust treatment. However, there's a bait, and I always liken it to a steak dinner, where the enemy sort of sticks out a filet mignon, gives you the knife, uh, it's a steak knife, and a fork, and says, you know, just take a bite. It's, you know, you, it would really help you in such an hour as this because you really have been abused. You really have been harmed. And so you're like, I, I have. And then you, try, you know, cut yourself a little piece and, and start chewing on it. You don't realize what you've done. You see, it's like you've signed a contract. You've agreed to something. It's a certain form of control. The victim mentality kills. In ministry, especially today, and I, of course, I've only been in ministry for my lifetime. You know, I I haven't, I wasn't in the previous generations to see what they dealt with in regards to self-pity. But when you're dealing with people that have been harmed in this generation, I tell you what, we have, especially with the self-esteem movement, the self-pity movement is closely following. In other words, most of you, even when I said self-esteem, you're like, what's wrong with that? Well, Christ-esteem is how we as Christians function. In other words, you want to know what's going to make you function well in in, in your life? Esteem Christ. Don't esteem self. Self is not what you make your focus. If you make self your focus, like, oh, I just need to esteem self. I need to applaud self. I need to coddle self. I need to make self feel good. Well, you're going to die. That's Adam's disease. You see, we are set free as Christians from the Adam disease so that we can live in Christ and begin to behave as Christ, who was selfless. He didn't esteem self. He esteemed the Father's good opinion, and whatever the Father asked, that's what he did, and he laid down his own life. He denied self, and and then he says, come follow me. We deny self. We don't esteem self. It does not mean that God doesn't care about self. God cares about us. He really does. And it doesn't mean that you kick yourself and annihilate yourself and cut yourself and harm yourself. It's not the opposite that is true. It's that we forget ourselves and we remember Jesus. We get swallowed up in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ and we let Jesus take care of us. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things in life will be added to you. You see, there's all sorts of things that self could pursue. Our job is to fix our gaze on Jesus. He fixes his gaze on us. He'll take care of us. And so, this whole trap of being the victim is a very, very serious issue today. Uh, the foster care system trains the kids in it. And so, if one, and this is one of those things that as we as the church begin to minister to foster kids, to adoptive kids, to anyone who is coming from an extreme background, did they, were they harmed? They were. And as a result, there's an extra susceptibility in their life to this notion of being the victim. Because the enemy will whisper it to them all day long, their their social workers will whisper it to them all day long, you were harmed, you were hurt, you were, uh, you know, this happened to you, this happened to you, woe is you, and we need to take care of you. And as a result, they can easily become the center of their own universe. Life is about them and their needs, and as a result, they're nearly impossible to rescue. It is some form of a shell that begins to form about those that have been harmed to the point where those that have the gospel truth have a very difficult time getting it through that shell. Now, every single one of us in here at some level, I mean, we're in North America right now as we speak, and we're extremely susceptible to this disease. You know, you go to other countries and there's diseases that float around. Uh, Don't drink the water here because you can catch. Well, in America, be watchful. Because self-pity is right around the corner. In other words, it's all about you. The entire advertising system, the Hollywood system, every bit of the financial system, the political system, is all about meeting your needs. Very few of us vote anymore on what would truly bring glory to God. We vote on what would bring comfort and ease to us. And as a result, our thinking is centered around self instead of Jesus Christ. The victim mentality where life is one big sob story. When you start to give in to the victim mentality, every single thing that happens in your life is some attack on you. I can't believe this just happened. This always happens to me. Why me? That that notion, that thought pattern cripples the soul. My life is so hard. These are just quotes. You might be familiar with these quotes. Either coming from your own soul and what's funny is you can almost see the enemy going your life is so hard And then you go my life is so hard (laughs) The enemy says people sure have mistreated you people really have mistreated me Do you know the things I have gone through? I have special problems and special challenges No one ever considers my unique needs everyone else gets the privileges and advantages I have it harder in life than those around me. Why are things always so hard for me? Huh. Boy, quote unquote. And we're the church of Jesus Christ, and yet these are quotes in our life. How did they get there? If ever someone were deserving of a pity party, it would be me. You see, I know that self pity may be dangerous for some, but for me, I deserve it. You see, I'm a special case. One of the most dangerous ideas that could ever creep into our idea bank or our brain is the idea that we have special problems. You see, every single one of us has a unique life. There's no doubt about it. And every single one of us has unique circumstances. But we all have the same problem. We have a problem with sin. And the definition of sin in very short terms would be self on the throne, or self in the control position. Life is all about self. That's sin. And when life is about self, the results of your life cannot please God. When your life is about Jesus, the fruit of your life pleases God. And so what we need to be saved from is that very kernel. And so when these are our quotes, and when we look at our issues, and when we turn inward, we're doing the devil's business the wound, a very common term for it today in Christianity. We have been psychoanalyzed. And so we have brought psychology into uh, Christianity instead of the gospel. And there is something really known as psychology and how the mind works. There's nothing wrong with that. However, there's this notion of psychology which celebrates self. That's where self-esteem even comes from, self-pity. These are terms, psycho terms. And so it's self, 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 self. And it's all about Soothing self, comforting self, and that's what psychology is built around, is somehow esteeming self, coddling self, comforting self, securing self, so that self would feel good. Self would be adapted to its circumstances. That's not the gospel. That's not what the gospel teaches. And so as a result, we have a contrary gospel under the banner of psychology that is masquerading in the church. And so one of the terms that comes out of this, uh, we have, you know, Dr. Phil uh, invented a term called, I don't know what it was, it was like the fictional self, and then we have multiple writers, best-selling writers in Christianity that call it the false self, and so they've created this language of the false self, and the false self is your wound, and this is that which has been done to you, perpetrated against you, and it's created a wound, And so, when Jesus comes to this earth, you know what they say he came to do? Is to save you from your false self or from your wound so that he could set your true self free. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say that there's not a part truth if we were to word it that way. It's a strange way to word it. However, let me make something clear Jesus didn't come to just save you from a false self, he came to save you from self. So, let's not stick a little word on the front of it and say and cause self to remain on the throne. You see, what we have a tendency to do is excuse the self-centricity and the self-centeredness of our culture by trying to reinvent how Christianity works. Christianity comes to us. Jesus Christ enters our life and says, Eric, I have set you free from sitting on that throne. I want you to step down and kneel and allow me to take my position. This life will only work when it centers around Jesus Christ. If it centers around self, It simply will not work. You want to know why some of your Christian lives aren't working? It's because you're still right smack in the middle of it. It's supposed to be Jesus that it centers around. So we call this the modern invite into our personal pain. You see, when you have pain, there's a proper way of handling pain, and the gospel does address this. However, many of us have a tendency to loom in our pain, to sort of Make it a habitat and surround ourselves with our pain and reminisce and ruminate about our pain. And as a result, it destroys our life. We usually struggle with forgiveness issues, bitterness, resentment, and self-pity is crowned king. This is a quote from one of the top-selling books, Christian books, in the past 10 years. Uh, A book that has possibly impacted more men in Christianity than almost any other. Uh, runaway bestseller, and the entire book is about the false self and removing the false self uh, from the life so that the true self can live. And this is one of the chief quotes. My own heart let me more have pity on, let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. No, 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 no. So this morning you're not in that book, you're in the <laughs> church at Ellerslie. And we speak it straight here. You see, your self is not what you cuddle. You must recognize that yourself and his agenda or your agenda to usurp the kingdom of heaven in your your life and to take the throne that belongs to Jesus and to say, this is mine. I want control of my life is the essence of your problem. Allow the spirit of God to freshly convict you and to show you that you are in the wrong place and that it isn't your life. Yes, you've been dealt some blows in your life, but the way to deal with your issues, the way to deal with your hurts and your pains is to give them over to the one who heals. His name's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals Jesus Christ. He has shed blood for you. He has given you a river of life that when you would turn to him, it will wash over you like a healing salve, and it will take even what the enemy meant to harm you and will turn it to strength in your life. He takes your pebbles and turns them into jewels, but you must relinquish them. You must give them to him. The gospel has power to save, but you must give up self. Self Self-pity. The great power outage of the soul. Yeah, the church doesn't have a lot of power today. And some of us say, well, yeah, it wasn't intended to. Yeah, the early church had power. They walked in the strength of the Holy Spirit. But we're we're today... uh, That's all ceased, and now we just have the words of Scripture. You cannot live the Christian life with merely the words and the text of Scripture. You need God in order to live the Christian life. And God has given us that deposit, that earnest, so that we could have something and actually live out this triumph known as the gospel. And we could showcase to the world who Jesus is. We're the body of Christ. We're supposed to show something. But when we allow self-pity in it, it's a great power outage. It is the opposite, it is the antithesis of what Jesus Christ came to do, which was to set you free from the control of self. And so, what you're doing is claiming self and self's interests as the highest priority. Any of you ever thought of God pity? You know, we have self pity, but no, no I, I agree, it's probably not the best term for it. God pity, do you pity God? I don't know if that's the best way of saying it, but I have a quote about it that's pretty fascinating, considering the opposite notion for a change. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. I remember William Huntington says in his autobiography that one of the sharpest sensations of pain that he felt after he had been quickened by divine grace was this. He felt such pity for God. I do not know that I ever met with the expression elsewhere, but it is a very expressive one. Although I might prefer to say sympathy with God and grief that he should be so evil and treated, ah, oh, my friends, there are many men that are forgotten, that are despised, and that are trampled on by their fellows. But there was never a man who was so despised as the everlasting God has been. Many a man has been slandered and abused, but never was man abused as God has been. Many have been treated cruelly and ungratefully, but never one has treated, was treated as our God has been. Let us look back upon our past lives. How ungrateful have we been to him. It was he who gave us beans, and the first utterance of our lips should have been in his praise. And so long as we were here, it was our duty to have perpetually sung his glory. But instead of that, from our birth, we spoke that which was false and untrue and unholy. And since then, we have continued to do the same. So whether or not the term God pity is the right way of saying it, Do we recognize that self-pity is so unmerited when we are thinking of the God of the universe who has given up everything for us to rescue us in every single circumstance? There is no pity that should be given to self. If pity were to be given anywhere, it would be given to the Son of God who suffered and died on our behalf, to the God of the universe, who though he is God, has been slandered, has been forgotten, has been disregarded, and though he should have cast us all away with just the brush of his hand, he has loved us and he has sought us. And though he has given up his very life, we have responded to his mercies and his long suffering with nothing but stoic faces, hardened hearts, and rebellious lives. If anyone should be pitied, it would be God. How did the world's greatest victim think? cannot think of a greater victim than Jesus Christ if you were going to start defining victim. However, none of us are ever going to think of Jesus as a victim. Isn't that interesting? Your life could be evil and treated. Your life could be harmed and harassed. Your life could be beaten down, thrown into prison, falsely accused. I mean, the, the whole kit and caboodle could come against you. And yet, depending on how you respond to it, People will either look at you as a victim or they'll look at you very differently, as a victor. When we look at Jesus, though he was so badly treated, we do not look at him as a victim. We look at him as a victor. Hint, he didn't think like a victim. Jesus did not think like a victim and we have the mind of Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is the translation Of Philippians 2.5 that I grew up with. It was attitude, which is actually a fairly good translation of the word uh, that I'm going to introduce you to. Uh, In the King James, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So I want to introduce you to this word because this is the idea or the mind that was in Jesus is actually supposed to be in us. So the way that Jesus handled his abuse the way that he handled the slander and the false accusation, the way that he handled his issues, is the precise way we're supposed to handle ours. We'll call it the almighty mind. We have the mind of Christ. Attitude, phroneo, is the word in scripture, in the Greek, that enunciates this. Now, attitude or mind, you see, when we think of a mind, we think of a brain. And as a result, we oftentimes miss the biblical understanding of what it's meaning by mind. It doesn't mean that it's opposite the brain. It's where the thoughts are, yes, but it's a perspective. It's like the way you're appropriating or seeing things. And so we'll call this a mental lens through which one sees, reasons, and decides. A perspective, a point of reason, a way of thinking. So if I, you know, I, I were context, and if I were to take out my context, I would you 'd be somewhat of a blur okay i 'd see some shapes and colors, and I could guess at who i 'm talking to. however, my eyesight isn 't actually that good, but I stick in a different lens and suddenly I have clarity, and suddenly I can see things with definition that i couldn 't before. If I put on a different kind of glasses like I stuck some some shades on, and you know they were just normal shades, I would see basically everything in here, but just with Maybe a filter on it, everything's a little darker. If I put on purple sunglasses, it was purple lenses on it, what would I see? Everything would suddenly have a hue of purple. This is what this word is. It is the lens through which you see life. And so as a result, depending on which lens you choose, it will actually affect what you see and what you understand. So if you choose the wrong lens, you're going to see incorrectly. If you choose the lens of Christ, you see properly. So I, I made a nice little drawing. It's sort of a spooky one because the thumb looks like it's uh, floating there. Uh, but what we have is the thumb of circumstance. It is a, a bit gross. I'm not, sorry about that. It wasn't intending to be. Uh, but what we have is, remember, phreneo is our Greek word. And that means attitude or the lens through which you look. So you see that blue stuff up there in the top? That's Christ's phreneo or the mind of Christ and it's always above the thumb. But when you take on the earth's perspective, the earth's lens, and you do not have Christ's lens or worldview, then what you always are is under the thumb of your circumstances. Your circumstances affect your attitude. You see, things happen in life, and they happen, I don't want to say daily, but for some of us it sure does feel that way, where you get the the news or the information that comes your way or the that, that just shocks you. It, it, it tells you of empty bank accounts. It tells you of uh, sicknesses that have been diagnosed to you. I mean, Or family members who are hurting. Or different things that are just shockers. You read the front page of the newspaper and it's like, oh, oh dear Lord. You see, these are circumstances in our life. And if you do not have the mind of Christ, you come under that thumb and it presses down and it oppresses and depresses you. You ever heard of depression? Oppression? Uh huh. It's being under the thumb. You see, when you have the mind of Christ, you actually are above the thumb and it completely alters your framework. And so as a result, you can be thrown into prison and sing songs. You can be scourged and go out rejoicing. Huh? Well, well how do they do that? They can be fed to wild beasts and sing as they are. What's wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. They see they're human just like we are, except they have been changed by Jesus Christ. And one of the key things is the renewing of their mind and their perspective. They've been changed in their thinking to actually have the mind of Christ and to be above the thumb as opposed to beneath it. Self-pity is beneath that thumb. In fact, it's very difficult not to have self-pity in your life when you think the earth's thoughts. But when you are above the thumb, self-pity has no place. It, It doesn't even make sense. Eaglet suffering. A harrowing tale of supposed parental abuse. Oh, the poor eaglet. Oh, have you heard the tale of the poor eaglet? The poor eaglet had such a mansion. I I don't know if you've ever seen an eagle's uh, nest, but they're usually up very high. In fact, this is like a great place for eagle watching. We have, at different times of year, there was one time there were 100 bald eagles that were nesting in the high trees over here across the lake. A hundred! Isn't that exciting? Yeah, we have a great spot for this story. And so you have uh, these high lofty, like the mansions of birds, okay? So this... This eaglet is born into luxury, silver spoon in its beak, and, uh, and everything is posh and nice and the downy side of the feathers is just sitting there, and baby eaglet is being, uh, you know, beak-fed by mama. I mean, everything is just easy, and then everything goes south. Have you heard the story? I mean, it's just such terrible abuse, but Mother Eagle one day begins to just go berserk and tear up the nest. And just starts messing with the nest and doing all this stuff. And you see, in a, in a feather, a feather is a funny thing if you were to study it. I, it's not that I've ever studied it. I just know about feathers enough to be dangerous. But on a feather, there's a downy side of a feather. You know, the, the, the normal side of a feather is just, it's soft and sort of cushy. But then there's another part where I can go into you. And you're like, ow! Isn't that funny that something so soft can also uh, prick you and you can make you mad? Well, that's exactly what Mama does. Mama has set up a, a little nest for Baby Eaglet that is so cozy, so comfortable, all the downy stuff is sticking up. And then Mother comes in and stirs up the nest and has all the pokey stuff sticking out. Now Baby Eaglet can't find a spot to get comfortable. Baby Eaglet's sort of like, Excuse me? And then Mother goes berserker even more. She starts hovering. You have ever seen a hummingbird hover? That's one thing, but an eagle hover. That means to stay in one position, one place. You know what kind of force with the wings must be being created when an eagle hovers? And so guess where mother eagle decides to hover, right over baby eaglet, pressed against the, sh- the pokey uh, pinions. It's like, "Excuse me, this isn't comfortable. Parental abuse. And Baby Eaglet is mashed up against the hard stuff, is having to resist and say, Mother, don't do this! And then Mother Eagle, just to continue the abuse, knocks Baby Eaglet out of the nest, and Baby Eaglet is falling to her death. You've heard the story, haven't you, of the terrible abuse of Mother Eagle towards little Baby Eaglet? You see, depending on how you listen to this story... If you only hear it from the eaglet perspective, you could be horrified. I can't believe Mother Eagle did that. I I mean, that is so inappropriate. Have we called social services on this one? Because that is just not right. Okay, and if all you have is the eaglet's perspective, if that's the only testimony you have, which is what we live with in this earth, all we have is the victim thought pattern if that's all you have and you don't correct it with the word of truth, then you will live in depression. You're falling to your death. But there's actually more to the story if we were to listen. You see, what if we were to go to Mother Eagle and say, you know, what's your perspective on this whole thing? You're being accused of abuse here. Could you imagine what Mother Eagle could say? You see, I love my baby eaglet so much that I need to help baby eaglet. You see, if a storm were to come, Baby eaglet is vulnerable because baby eaglet was designed by God to fly. But baby eaglet can't fly yet. There are certain things that must take place in baby eaglet's life to prepare it to strengthen its wings to be able to fly. So as a loving mother, says mother eagle, I need to stir up the nest to create a discomfort in baby eaglet's life to actually cause a resistance. Baby eaglet needs to know how to exert how to flex, how to exercise. And so then I hover over the nest, and what I'm doing is I'm pressing against baby eaglet so that baby eaglet would press its wings back. And when baby eaglet presses its wings, it strengthens a muscle that is necessary to be strengthened so that it can fly. And also, in that strain, against the downward pressure of wind, a lubricant, an oil is released from under baby eaglet's wings, which lubricates its wings so that it can fly. And then I knock it out of the nest, and we're all like, oh! And baby eaglet falls, and I swoop down, and I catch it. And I drop it back in the nest, and I knock it out again. And it falls, and I catch it, and I pick it up, and finally baby eaglet catches on to the idea that he has wings like mama. And pretty soon he starts flapping, and baby eaglet is caught, brought back up to the nest, and soon baby eaglet learns how to fly. You see, there's something special about an eagle, and that is that it has strength in its wings to rise above storms. You see, when an eagle learns how to fly properly, it goes up into that heavenly dimension, and there could be a storm in life. Just imagine this. A storm in life, and the eagle, you know, we have storms in our life all the time, but do we appropriate them as an eagle appropriates them? Do we rise above them? Or are we being drenched beneath them? You see, God wants to give us eagle's wings so that we can fly above the storm. Same storm, same storm you've always had in your life, but now you're above it looking down on it with a big smile on your face as opposed to beneath it with a frown upon your face. You see, you have to choose the mindset that you're going to live after. And one of the great gifts of grace that we've been given in the gospel is the mind of Christ, where we actually can understand Mother Eagle's perspective. And we can look at every situation and go, God, you're strengthening my wings. God, you're lubricating my wings. God, you're teaching me how to fly. You see, everything that is happening in our life is growing us, grooming us, training us so that we can be stronger, not weaker. But if we resist wrongly and we give way to self-pity, we actually fall under the oppressive, depressive pattern of the enemy's business. Sticking on the almighty glasses. So instead of looking at it from the earthly lens, imagine if we stick on the heavenly lens. Reasoning from the vantage point of the mother eagle. This current pressure upon you is working great benefit into your little eaglet body. So you have to translate this. We're not just talking about eagles and eaglets. We're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about us. And so some of you have some downward pressure in your life right now. And you've been grumbling about it. And yet I want you to stick on the mind of Christ. I want you to reason towards these issues properly. And that is that this current pressure upon you is working great benefit into your legal, little eaglet body. Trials are opportunities through which God will make us stronger. Oh yeah, I love trials. Trials will make me stronger. See, that's how Mother Eagle lenses will show you life. Suffering is a means by which God both purifies us and fortifies our soul. Affliction is the secret catalyst to work unbreakability and unbendability into the soul. An overview of the almighty attitude. So I want you to begin to consider thinking like Christians. I know in modern Christianity we have a tendency to lose sight of how Christians are actually supposed to think. We behave oftentimes, if you were to stick a Christian and a non-Christian right next to each other in the American culture, you could hardly tell the difference. And yet that's not appropriate. There should be a very significant difference. One looks like Adam, one looks like Jesus. You see, one behaves as the world behaves, one behaves as heaven behaves. Very different. And so I want us to begin to think like heaven thinks. An overview of the almighty attitude. To him, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are as counters as small dust of the balance. Stick on the glasses. Do you recognize how great our God is? Do you recognize how big our God is? To him the nations are as a drop in a bucket. Put on these glasses. He sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all, the creator of the heavens and the earth, God of all the kingdoms of this earth. And before him all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And when he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Our Lord possesses all the greatness, all the power, all the glory, all the victory, and all the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is his. His is the kingdom and he has exalted his head above all. Boy, if you live with these glasses on, I mean, you would live completely different. This is the God you serve and you are saved by him. You are found in him. Your position is actually in that. The two chapter twos, so there's just a fascinating phenomenon in Scripture that's uh, two different chapter twos, Psalm 2 and Philippians 2, both deal with a mindset. And so it's like we have the two sides to the way that we function as Christians, and yet these two thoughts seem contrary to each other. For instance, if any of you know, remember Psalm 2, I'm going to read it in just a second, but it's like... God sneering, holding in derision all that would dare defy him. And then Philippians 2, if you remember Philippians 2, this is great God Jehovah condescending and taking on the form of a bondservant, becoming obedient unto death. Don't those two just at first blush seem to contradict each other? Hey God, which one are you? Are you the mighty one that sneers at the enemy? Or are you this humble sort of sappy one over here that you know, just lays down and falls apart? You see, both of them are true, and this is the friction of how the kingdom of heaven works. The kingdom of heaven works very similarly in and through the life of Jesus as it does in us. Because in a sense, we're to have the almighty attitude of triumph, of victory, and yet we're to have a lowly mindset to take the lowest place at every table we come to in life. And they're not contradictory. It's the life of Jesus. It's called the mind of Christ. So here we are in Psalm 2, and this is sort of unpeeling this uh, whole idea uh, from one side, but this is the strong side first. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And we know who his anointed is. In the Hebrew, that's the idea of the Messiah, the anointed. In In the New Testament, that's Christos, which is the Christ. And so you go from the Hebrew to the Greek, and that word, anointed, is his Christ, so against the Lord or Jehovah and against his Christ well you know who that is his name is Jesus saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us he that sits in the heavens do you guys know someone who sits in the heavens remember that one that sits at the right hand of the father in heavenly places uh huh he that sits in the heavens shall laugh the lord shall have them in derision uh huh this is the mind of christ So don't lose it. Though it's in the Old Testament, it's still a Christophan. It's still a picture of the Christ. And then in Philippians 2, "...let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The two seeming contradictory attitudes. What condescension, what wrath, what judgment. Hostility, when you're looking at God's attitude, when you're looking at his lens, it's a hostility, a derision, a snubbing of the almighty knows that all things proud and debased. A laughing at the smallness of the threat, a mockery of the darkness and a full assurance in the triumph. Sovereignty and preeminence of the light. And then second, the second lens is what humility What love, what grace. It's a humbling, a bending, a giving, a love so great and an affection so strong that the Almighty has moved to remove his robe of glory, endure the afflictions of the cross on our behalf in order that he might save us. God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. So the two essentials to unstoppable living, this mixture of knowing your position in Christ. Remember Psalm 2 shares what his attitude is. In Christ, we literally laugh at the work of the devil. Hold it in derision. Why? I mean, can we do that? Uh, Can we actually hold it in contempt and say, no, uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. I'm not going to entertain that thought. Why would I give way to that? I'm a Christian. You see, we're in Christ. We're seated in heavenly places in the anointed one who is written about in Psalm 2, showing his very attitude towards that which conspires to destroy him. And so these are two things that need to be woven together, that strength and that humility. So if you know your almighty position, then you can obey boldly without fear, and nothing can stop you from fulfilling your God-given assignment. You see, Jesus was given a commission, and that was to become a worm and no man, to literally become sin for us. He, he took on the lowest of low positions and humbled himself in such an amazing, shocking, bewildering way. Why? Well, he knew his almighty position. You see, when you know your almighty position, you're able to take the lowest place and do it boldly and to do it fearlessly. But you need both. You see, the mind of Christ includes both. And if you clip the wings on either side, if you don't know your almighty position, then it's very difficult to take that low position. And you very easily can become the victim. But when you know that you've been rescued, when you know that Jesus Christ has elevated your life, when you know that he has rescued you from you and the debaseness of the flesh, and you know that he loves you and has put a seal upon you, and he will always be with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you, then you have a newfound confidence to live boldly in obedience, in humility, a willingness to take the lowest place and do it unto him for his glory. God's thoughts. So when God thinks, uh, he says, I am that I am. That's a God thought. I would encourage you not to have that thought. <laughs> you see, that would be called blasphemy. Jesus was accused of blasphemy. Why? Because he thought that thought. You see, he did say that he was before Abraham was, he said, I am. Whoa, what? did he just say that? He did say that. You see, Jesus is God. It's one thing for God to think it. It's a whole other thing for us to think it. So we have a slightly different thought. We have the same mind of Christ, but we have to appropriate that mind from our vantage point. The believer's thoughts, he is that he is, and I am in him, and he is in me. The one that is the I am is actually My coat of armor, the one that is the I am, that is forever and always the exact same and will never alter and will never change, that same one lives inside of me. Ah, yeah, that's a game changer when you begin to think those thoughts. The importance of an almighty attitude. If you reason small, you live small. If you think of God as weak, you'll be intimidated by the bluff of the enemy. If you don't have confidence in God's strength, then you will falter when the enemy boasts his strength. You see, the almighty attitude is of the utmost importance for living out the Christian life. When you know who your God is and you know your position in him, that's the lens you live from. It's called the mind of Christ. The lamb and the wolf pack, attitude is everything. Well, this harkens back to our message last night at graduation. God breaks it to us, and he says, yes, you're sheep. Like, sheep? God, that's not a very strong picture. I mean, you could have picked a lot of different animals, but he picked sheep. And we're likened unto sheep, which is showing our intrinsic weakness or our dependence. Even Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, we have no ability outside of our connectivity with that vine to be able to function, as Christians, and our, the likening of this as for sheep is outside of the shepherd, we have no ability to overcome the wolves. And so as a result, when we abide in the shadow of the shepherd, we actually have that which is necessary to overcome the wolf pack. And so in this picture of the lamb and the wolf pack, attitude is everything. You see, if you only think from a sheep mentality, and you look at yourself and you say, you know, I got some wool on me, but that's not going to really help in fighting the wolves. I got some hooves. I'm not very fast, and I'm pretty stupid. I, I don't have a lot going for me. And the other thing that really stinks in this situation is uh, sheep are good meat, and, la- and wolves really like to eat them. So you got the good meat thing going. You got the slowness and the stupidity, and you got a wolf pack over there. If you reason from the sheep mentality, you're dead. I mean, would you blame the sheep for being a little depressed? Would you blame the sheep for giving in to fear and anxiety? Yeah, I wouldn't blame them. But that's the problem, is the sheep hasn't heard the full truth. Hey, hey, sheepy, haven't you heard that you have a shepherd right here? And if you turn unto the shepherd, he protects you from those wolves? Huh? You see, when you hear the good news, it changes the lens. Now suddenly, how do you appropriate that wolf back? Well, I don't care. The enemy can say, but you're slow. He's not. But you're good meat. Yeah, but he's going to wallop them over the head. I don't really care how good a meat I am. I'm not scared of him because I have a shepherd. When you have a shepherd, you no longer fear wolf packs. All you do is fear the mighty presence of your shepherd. He's that good. And he doesn't tremble before the wolf packs. So why should you? He's laughing at him, holding him in derision. So why in the world are you fearing him? If your shepherd doesn't fear him, you shouldn't fear him. Spiritual intimidation, the results of forgetting the bigness of your God. You see, the enemy gets away with his guff when we forget the bigness of our God. When we begin to live with a sheep mentality once again, we immediately come under the thumb of circumstance. And as a result, we begin to panic, we begin to give way to anxiety, and we begin to be the victim all over again. Spiritual intimidation, that is the door through which it enters. Installing mental hazard signs. I'm guessing that not everyone is exactly like me in every regard to how my brain works, but I'm assuming that we have some similarities. What I do in life is when I go through a trial or an extreme circumstance, I stick up a little sign just to remind myself that if I ever come near that situation again, to remember Remember that there was a big hole in the ground where I twisted my ankle last time I came through. Just a little note that I put in my mind. Like I said, I don't know exactly how your mind is organized if you do the same thing. Maybe you have pink signs and I have like, you know, neon blue. I'm not exactly sure uh, how your mind works. But like, for instance, when I go to a restaurant, I stick up a little sign. And it usually either says yay or nay for the next time. All right? That's what you want to do. Because have you ever had it where someone says, did you want to go to the such and such? And you just have a little sign inside. You don't remember what you ordered or anything, but you're like, I didn't like it last time. I have a little sign that says nay. And I'm not exactly sure uh, why. You know, they're like, well, I was there before, and I had a great meal. Yeah, I'm willing to try it again, but I just got a little nay going here. Okay? So these are called mental hazard signs. Now, the enemy feeds off of these. Okay, because in your obedience to Jesus Christ, if you begin to reason as a victim, because there's all sorts of signs that says, you go this way and you may die. You go this way and everyone will reject you. You go this way, oh yeah, you'll, you'll be made fun of in this generation. Oh, and all your friends will leave. There's all sorts of signs out there prepackaged for us. We didn't even stick them there. We were told about them. It's just like, you read the sign, read the sign. If you ever become one of those radical Christians, yep, read what's gonna happen to you. And so as a, result, as a result, we have these hazard signs. But Christianity cannot be controlled by the enemy's signs. In other words, God has commissioned us forward. Can you imagine how many signs could have been up for Jesus? Don't go this way. you will be rejected. You'll be betrayed. Uh, have you heard read the prophecies? There's all sorts of things that are supposed to happen to the, the, the anointed Christ when he comes. It's not good. Uh, if you go this way and you're betrayed into the hands of sinners, I mean, they may scourge you and mock you and put a crown of thorns on your head and crucify you and hang you naked. Don't go in this direction. You see, if we are controlled by hazard signs, we don't live Christianity. Beware ever jumping up for a head ball again. This is an Eric Ludi hazard sign. When I was in high school, I went up for a head ball and I got a karate chop to the back of my head here. I was doing some... Uh, I, I was flapping my gums a little too much towards the other team and they sent in one of their karate guys. I don't know what kind of thing it was. And I got a serious concussion from it. And then when I was, I think it was another time in in high school, the ball was coming across the middle and I went up for a head ball. And I don't remember what happened. If I hit someone else's head, I don't know. I I got another concussion. I got two concussions in high school going up for head balls. And so when I got to college, so I went to college, play soccer, right? So I'm supposed to like be better in college. However, the ball is coming across the middle, and I have a sign now. And I didn't jump. And the coach was like, Looney, what are you doing? I'm like, I got a sign. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense on paper. However, we have things that hold us back from obeying. Beware of ever leaving the country again. When less and I first started our ministry, We were, we we took a trip. where was it? Oh, it was to Australia and New Zealand. We did a tour down there. And we had this whole tour set up in America. And when we were gone out of country, because they didn't have the same communication things then as they do now. You couldn't really cultivate your tour in America at the same time being out of the country. And so our tour just fell into disrepair in the United States. And I came back and I realized we had this huge mess on our hands because We went on that international tour. You leave the country, and this is what you get. No more. We're not saying yes to any of these uh, out-of-country tours anymore. Look what happens. In other words, it's association that you create. I call them links. The enemy loves to create links in your life, so it causes you to hesitate in obedience moving forward. Beware of ever praying like that again. I took a bold stand. This is, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, uh, in prayer. And I got hit so intensely in that stand that it actually still to this day when I think of certain types of prayer actually causes me to back off which should then cause me all the more to say huh, what's that? Maybe I should be going in that direction but it's really interesting how we have these subtle subconscious markers that are hindering us from living as Christ lives. Fear, the great demonic ploy. Stop right there or else. Okay, you're Christians, and you live in a generation that is heavy-duty onslaught of self-pity, victim mentality. We are controlled by fear, consequences of what may happen if we dare to stand contrary to the social systems of our day. Keep your mouth shut. You may believe something, but keep it to yourself if you are wise. There are signs all around us, and yet... What we are talking about is the mind of Christ. He is not intimidated by these signs. So why are we? Do you think God comes up to the signs that the world sticks sticks out and says, "Yeah, you're not really supposed to talk about your faith here"? And Jesus says, "Ooh, that's a good point. Never mind all this. Go and preach the gospel. Hey guys, come back. Come back. No, we shouldn't do it. There's a sign." Jesus doesn't care about these signs. The Holy Spirit isn't like sign-watching. What does the devil have to say on that one? What do you think the political correct statement would be in this one? Oh, oh, hey, go, go, no, don't say, oh, no. The Holy Spirit is opposite this world. He is holy. He is other than. And as a result, when we become other than, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to make us Holy. To sanctify us in this world, which causes us to look different, to behave different. It doesn't mean unloving, as the world would say it. It doesn't mean condemning and judgmental and we bop people in the nose. It means we have the mind of Christ. We know who we represent, and we represent him in taking the position of a servant and loving well. So fear, the great demonic ploy, stop right there or else. Many of you have had this thought. I want to give my life to Jesus, but there are certain things that their signs are reading say, if I do that, if I start behaving like that Eric Ludi guy, oh boy, have you heard what's happened to him? Hey, look at my big smile, too. I love my life. In fact, if you, off, you came straight up to me afterwards and said, I'll trade you my life for your life. I said, No way. You've got to be kidding. I love my life. And You're like, Don't you know what you have in your life? You've got a lot of flack. I know. Isn't it great? You see, I get a lot of barbells is what I have. I get a lot of exercise. I get a lot of hovering over me. This is good stuff. Reasons to rejoice. See, in the Bible, we have this all the time. The noise of Sanballat, the noise of Sennacherib. Now, those that went through a semester here are very familiar with each of these noises. The noise of the Anakim, the noise of Goliath, the noise of the Syrian army, the noise of the cross, the noise from Christian history. You see... All throughout Christian history, those that have radically followed, we've got a big book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It passes down to us. It says, so here's your sign. You know, you follow Jesus Christ radically, and this is what you get. And we read that book with a smile on our face. We say, praise God for such a testimony. Look what God does. He gives them the mind of Christ, and they actually laugh and sneer at the enemy's threats. Yeah, I what I want. I want the franeo of heaven. I want to live that way. Reasoning from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. Forging an almighty attitude. You see, when you take any situation, I want you to begin to practice sticking on the lens of heaven. So the next time you get that shocker piece of information that one You know, piece of data. You read the front page of the newspaper, which, by the way, I would always encourage you to avoid the front page of the newspaper. Rarely, if ever, I can't even think of a time where it's been edifying. Okay, it's always the world's mentality about what's happening on Earth. It doesn't say, "Here's God's opinion. This is what God is doing today." Have you ever just come to God when you wake up in the morning and say, "God, I want Your newspaper"? What are you doing on the earth today? Because that's technically all that matters to us as Christians. I don't want to read what the enemy's doing. I want to know what God's doing and join in on it. I already know that the enemy's up to no good. And that the enemy is bringing depression and oppression everywhere he can. He's bringing destruction. And it's an ever-increasing destruction. And many of us that live in this country feel it. We feel a sliding off a cliff. It's a downward spiral and it's happening quickly. However, what's God thinking? Is God panicked? Is God like, oh no, oh no, it's gotten out of hand. There's no hope. And all of us look at God and go, oh no, there's no hope. And we all start panicking. Or is God holding it all in derision and laughing, saying, I have my answer. Hey church, you ready to come over to my side and begin to behave as sheep ought to behave? Don't fear the wolf pack. You have a shepherd. Let's stick on those glasses and begin to live properly. So if you're going to forge an almighty attitude, there's a few things that are important here. Do you know the invitation? You see, Jesus Christ is like a house, and you've been invited over. The door is unlocked. He's known as the door, and he's also the house. It's called the body of Christ. You are entering into Christ. But you enter into it by faith, and so many of us are confused by some of these details. We know it's supposed to be simple, but for whatever reason, it seems very complex to us. So it's like if I were to say, you know, what is your? If I were to ask you what your position was, for you know, the students in here would bellow out, "In Christ!" However, you'd be like, "In Christ." You know, he's like, "Well, how do they have such confidence? Neither they're just saying what you know they're supposed to say, or they really know." And this whole semester is about them really knowing their position. It comes down to this: when I share with people about, "Do you know the invitation? Do you want to be found in Christ? Do you want His salvation?" You see, if you want Christ, that's a surest sign that he wants you. You can say, how do you know that? Because he's the initiator. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one that draws. And you are naturally called towards God Almighty. And so therefore, if you have a longing, if you have a desire for God, that means he's given you an invitation. And you opened it up, and it says, come. Come, enter in and be saved. And so if you have the invitation, you can have a confidence that he's not going to slam the door in your face. It's him that's initiating. Do you know that the invite is for you? It's not just for the people next to you, but it's for you. Do you want Jesus? Do you long to be rescued? Do you long to be set free? Well, it's you that he's after. It's not just the people around you, the Ellerslie students that are really spiritual. It's you. Do you know that God is not capricious? One of the most important little lines you may ever read in your life. Do you know that God is not capricious? That means he's not fooling with you. When he sticks out his hand to shake yours and you reach out to shake his, he's not going to pull it back and go, eh, gotcha. When he sticks his hand out, and you reach out to take his, you can know for certain that he will not draw back. If he's extending an invite to you, and you respond to him, he will honor that faith. You turn unto God, and he will save you. That's a fact. The devil, by the way, is the capricious one. He's the one that gives you a line with his mouth and then doesn't back it up with his life. God, on the other hand, is not anything like that. When he says it, he will in fact do it. Do you know that if you believe that that means you are clothed in him, the moment you believe and turn into Jesus, he actually becomes your clothing. Ephesians 6, it's called the armor of God. Isaiah 61, it's called the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness. And so we are being clothed In Jesus by faith, not by something you did, but when you were clothed in Jesus, that means all that He is is bequeathed to you. All that He has accomplished is given to you. He was righteousness. He was perfect before God. And as a result, even though you are not, when you turn in faith unto Jesus, His perfection is bequeathed to you. His righteous living is now yours. His conquering of sin and death is now available to you, so that you are no longer under the thumb of it, but that you are over it with the mind, the froneo of Jesus Christ. If you are in him, did you know that that means that you have access to all that is his? Do you know that what, belo- do you know what belongs to him? That's a good question, too. You could say, oh, I have, I have all that belongs to Jesus. Well, do you know what belongs to him? Whoa! We're talking about all things. Everything. God has exalted him to the highest place and seated him in the seat of power, dominion, control, and authority, and everything, bar none, is under his feet. And everything you need for life and godliness is available to you and for you in Christ Jesus. So when you turn unto Jesus, you have access to everything you could possibly ever need for this life here on this earth. Do you know where he dwells? Do you know where he sits? Because when you understand that you're in Christ, it actually then translates to, well, if I'm in Christ, then I was in his death. And my old man is now dead. Then if I'm in Christ, then I'm in his burial. And no longer is this old life visible. It's it's buried. It's out of sight. And if I'm in Christ, I'm in his resurrection. And the life that he now lives, that this resurrection life is now bequeathed to me. I have eternal life in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, I'm where he is. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. And as it says in Ephesians, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. Whoa! Wow! Do you know what his seated position means to you? Stick on the glasses. All things are under his feet. And what are we called? The body of Christ. So, what's under the feet of the body of Christ? All things. You see, we are not bullied around and pushed around by the enemy. That enemy was defeated. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are to walk forward in the confidence of the twice-born. We are new creatures in Christ. All things, have, all things have been made new. We've been given new mindsets towards everything that we do. And anytime we face difficulty, we don't go to self-pity. We look at it through the mother eagle's lens, and we say, even this will be turned into good for those who love him. Everything turns to good for those who love him. Everything, every trial, every challenge, even the things the enemy throws on me, all of it gets turned into good. That's the right perspective. It's the almighty attitude. The almighty attitude of the believer. Do you know that though you are weak, he will make you strong? We are to be super conquering. Just listen to this list I'm gonna take you through. This is so extraordinary. We are more than conquerors. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, those are conquerors. We're more than that. Nothing can stand in the way. There was no military force that could stop Alexander the Great. But we are more than that. What does that mean? The world, the systems of this earth, the powers of darkness have no defense against the church of Jesus Christ when it marches forward. Nothing can stop it. Do you know that his authority is now your authority? We are bequeathed all power and authority. We are seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly position of power and authority. We are given power over all the power of the enemy to tread upon their high places. Do you know that you are immovable and invincible? We are immovable and invincible. We are able to repel all the fiery darts of the enemy, able to tread on lions, adders, serpents, scorpions, and dragons, able to drink poison and be unharmed. A thousand shall fall at our side and ten thousand at our right hand, but it shall not come near us. There shall not a hair of our head perish. Jesus gives gives unto us eternal life, and we shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck us out of his hand, and nothing shall by any means hurt us. Do you know that we are to be fearless? The Lord is our light and our salvation, so whom shall we fear? The Lord is the strength of our life, so of whom shall we be afraid? Though a host should encamp against us, our hearts shall not fear. Though war should rise against us, we remain confident in our God. Because God will never leave us or forsake us. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in our trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against us in judgment, God shall condemn. Do you know that you are unstoppable? The Lord is with us as a mighty terrible one. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Whatsoever we shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever we shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Since God is for us. Who can be against us? Good old fashioned Christ for now. This is the mind of Christ. It's called the word of scripture. And what it says in the Bible goes. This is fact. I don't care what your experience testifies. I don't care what those signs read. The enemy has signs all over the place. I don't care about those. I care about what the Word of God says. The Word of God is spoken. Let's march. Reasoning from this position of indomitable, unstoppable, immovable strength and authority. Set your frenel, your mind, on things above, not on things of earth. Set your forneo to match the mother eagle's thoughts towards this situation and not the baby eaglet's thoughts. You have a role in this. You must choose the lens through which you look. You are in Christ, therefore you have his lens. You have his word. It's available to you. Put it on. Think and reason in and through that lens. If you reason through the eagle, you will be depressed. You will be self-pitying, you'll be complaining, and you'll hold a grudge against Mother Eagle. But if you get Mother Eagle's lens, you will see that everything that is being done is being done because of love. And everything that is being done is being done to strengthen and to build us stronger so that we can fly and actually exhibit the strength and the virtue and the glory of Mother Eagle for all the world to see. Put on the almighty glasses. Who should be intimidating who? It's ridiculous to think that we get intimidated by the devil. I mean, come on! Who should be intimidating who? The book of Philippians, that you would have the same for nail. If you were going to summarize the book of Philippians, if one of the ways that you can study scripture is what, what I could call the big idea. In every book of the Bible, there's a big idea. There's a key theme that is being expressed. Well, the book of Philippians, this would be arguably either the the main big idea or one of the supporting big ideas, that you would have the same freneo. It's a mindset one. This is the one where Paul's always saying, I rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. He's always rejoicing. He's in prison as he writes it. What's wrong with this guy? He's got a pair of glasses on, doesn't he? And he's saying that you would have these same glasses, He writes a whole book of the Bible that you would have these glasses. Fulfill you my joy that you be of the same for nail, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let this same for nail be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, have the same for nail. And if anything, you do not have the same for nail. God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us have the same for nail. I beseech Iodias and beseech Cynic that they have the same for nail in the Lord. Boy, this is all in one book. The whole thing is about having the same for nail as Christ. It's available to you. You can have it. You can be thrown into prison and rejoice too. It's not like Paul is a special Christian in regards to that. You see, it's funny. We in America have special problems. But then we treat the Christians in the Bible, the great pictures of grace, as special Christians. And so we have special problems. They're special Christians. There's a huge gulf between us. Instead of recognizing that Paul is bequeathed the exact same thing, he's a sheep like we are. And yet he's a sheep that stands at the ankle of the shepherd and says, hey, guys, you might want to stand here with me. This is pretty cool. Those wolves have nothing on me. But, Paul, you're in prison. I know. Isn't this amazing to live as Christ, to die as gain? I fear nothing. Viper come, jumps out of the flames and latches onto his hand. He goes, eh. throws it back in. Okay, guys, where were we? Fears nothing. He's unstoppable. God has a commission. Jesus was not stopped by the enemy. What looks like he was taken into the hands of sinners actually is not what happened. Jesus gave himself. You are not going to be taken by the enemy. You will give yourself unto Jesus Christ, and he can spend you as he sees fit. The enemy does not take you. The enemy does not get his agenda to be accomplished in your life. Your life will be controlled by God's agenda, and that is how you live. That is how you think. That is how you reason. What is the conclusion of such an almighty attitude, basking in the final chapter of Philippians? When you understand what Philippians is about, then the final chapter you know, just has context. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. I mean, why would you be anxious for anything? Do you have the glasses on? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is the freneo. This is the mindset. Don't look at the paper. If it's not leading you to those types of thoughts, Go to God's newspaper. The word of God. Think his thoughts. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. He's not a special Christian. He said, yeah, all of this that you see in my life, do it. And the God of peace will be with you. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have the glasses on, guys, says Paul. I don't care if I'm in prison I don't care if I'm free. It makes no difference. I've learned how to thrive in every circumstance. I know how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can, says Paul, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a for nail. Stick it on. I can face anything. I can overcome any obstacle. Not me, I'm just a sheep, but I can in Christ overcome anything because I have the almighty clothing and I have the almighty spirit dwelling inside of me. I'm a Christian. Boy, this is exciting stuff. And then you become just like Paul and you start sharing with everyone to stick on the same glasses. You see, we're called ministers of the gospel. We have good news to share. Stick on the glasses. Do you see it? Self for Jesus. We started by saying, if you make self the center, your life stinks. If you make Jesus the center, your life works. I mean, to bake down Christianity into just that little nugget actually works. That's what it is. I mean, we need to give you a few more tools with how maybe to do that, but that's what it comes down to. Who's at the center of your life? Is it about you or is it about Jesus? When life is about Jesus, it works. When life is about you, it just doesn't seem to work. Many of you, even throughout this semester, those that are graduating, understand what it means to be tripped by the devil. And I tell you what, the devil gets so much mileage out of a good trip. I mean, if he can stick his foot out there and get you, and you turn the other way and kaboom, you go right on your face. That same spot, that same manure pile you've fallen in so many times, and there you are. Fresh vision to serve Jesus, fresh passion, and there you go down. What does the devil do? It's interesting because we might not call it self-pity, but we call it self-focus. What happens? You begin to analyze you. You turn into you. The very thing that Christ is saving you from, the enemy begins to lure you in. You got a problem, buddy. You got a problem. You say you're following Jesus, but hey, if you're following Jesus, you wouldn't behave like that. He's got a point, don't you think? And yet what happens is you begin to be the victim all of a sudden. You're the one with a special problem. Everyone else at Ellers has got it figured out, but you've got a special problem. Special problem with sin? No, you've got the same old problem with sin. And you've got the same old ancient enemy. And he's very good at tripping. However, the more wise you get in the Christian faith, the more you begin to realize, if you trip, you get back up and make sure your glasses are on. And you remember your position in Jesus Christ. You remember that it's his blood that was shed on your behalf that saves you, and it's not your perfection that does. And you freshly reckon yourself in him. And you freshly reckon yourself in a seated position. And you bop the enemy in the nose. You see, you don't just sit there and stew about it. You don't allow the enemy to take you off the game. To get you sidetracked about you. This is not about you. It never was about you. It is about his glory. And the more you turn your gaze heavenward, the more you'll find that your walk becomes more and more consistent. And if you do get tripped, get up. Put on your glasses and remember the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's done the work. He will lead you forward. So here's a great quote to finish our semester on. To be disappointed in yourself and to wallow in it is a focus on self, not on Jesus. I know you want perfection in your life, I don't blame you. I want it too. And I fall for this so quickly. It's like, oh, Ludie! what was that? That was not the tone. You just gave a message on speaking gently. Oh! Where's bait? Ludy, 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 Ludy? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? To be disappointed in yourself and to wallow in it is a focus on self, not on Jesus. So I don't want to focus here, God. I want to focus on the one who doesn't have any issues. You are my rescuer. You are my savior. You are my righteousness. Praise you for that. That's Christianity. Christianity is always taking its gaze and looking up. Always making Jesus the centerpiece and the focus of everything. Every scripture you read, every prayer you pray. Everything you do is about Jesus. That's, that's what we do, isn't it? Isn't it supposed to be about Jesus? Ellerslie's mission statement. Do you guys remember this from the very first day of Ellerslie? I divulged to you what our very complex and very long-winded mission statement is. And so I'm going to give it all to you afresh, just as a a reminder. Because Ellerslie's mission statement should be your mission statement. It's it's really not long-winded, and it's really not uh, anything that's going to take up much time. Uh, You guys ready for this? This is fun. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Jesus. That's what we're about. That's the beginning of health and life and victory, and that's the end of it. Where does it lead us? It leads us to Jesus. Why does Jesus want us to be strong? So that there's nothing that impairs our relationship with him. The end goal of Christianity is Jesus. It's not something else where we're just these trophies in his cabinet. It's that we would know him. We'd be found in him, that there would be no blockage between us and him, no hindrance in our relationship. You see, we have weights that beset us, and God so gently begins to touch those. Let's move that out of the way. You see, but when we make it the perfect life, and that's the end of Christianity, we miss what Christianity is about. It's about him. So let's remember that afresh. As we finish these nine weeks, let's go forth remembering that this is all about Jesus. It's all for him, and it's all unto him. Let us not allow the enemy to play the game, to turn us back towards self. We've been set free from that ridiculousness. Now let's walk in that great.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.